When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, I preview day 10 of the 2024 Australian Open. It's our opening day of quarterfinal play in both the men's and women's singles draws, and it is a day to easily get excited about if you are a tennis fan. I'm not going to have to do much of a sales job. I'm not going to have to do much to pitch getting amped for the matches we have on the calendar on day 10. As simply put, the headlines are mainstream. On the men's side, you've got the fourth and fifth seeds doing battle. Yannick Sinner taking on Andre Rublev. Obviously, their paths to get to this quarterfinal vastly different, but I mean, those are two of the biggest ball strikers we have on the ATP Tour. And again, our fourth and fifth seeds entering this event. They both did their parts. That is a blockbuster quarterfinal matchup to get excited about. And how about this for an undercard match? You've got Sabalenka Krejcikova. What was arguably the best rivalry through the first three months of last season? Krejcikova getting the better of Sabalenka in the Middle East. Sabalenka having Krejcikova's number during the sunshine swing. Now, these two players get to go head-to-head in a major quarterfinal. And obviously, there have been some significant ups and downs for Krejcikova since then. We know Sabalenka has only had ups, rising as high to number one in the world rankings. You're never quite sure what Krejcikova you're going to get on each and every day. That said, if her run to this quarterfinal is any indication, this should be Sabalenka's most competitive match to date. And certainly all of us are wondering if the reigning Australian Open champion will even be tested at this point with how dominant she has looked through her first four victories. Again, that is another blockbuster headline matchup. I hesitate to use the term undercard. I think the next two matches would be, dare I say, our undercard quarterfinal bouts in the men's and women's singles draws. And again, for many, Novak Djokovic is never an undercard. Novak Djokovic is the headline. Here's the thing, his head-to-head with Taylor Fritz thus far, so lopsided, it's hard to get too excited about that match. But Fritz has always been a primetime performer. And again, it's world number one Novak Djokovic looking for title number 11 in Australia and 24th major title overall. So if that's your undercard, you're in a good spot. And then it is always exciting when two 21 and under talents can do battle in a major quarterfinal this early in their careers. Different pathways to get here, but reigning U.S. Open champion Coco Gauff taking on 21-year-old and resurgent Marta Kostyuk might quietly actually be my favorite matchup of the day. And so, again, three, four doozies, dare I say, on the calendar from a singles perspective for all of us to enjoy on Australian Open Day 10. Thus, I want to preview each of those matchups for all of you listeners on today's show. I want to go through the 
minute details that perhaps you may have missed over the course of their runs. I want to discuss uh, their track record, not only in majors, but against pedigree similar to their opponents that they're playing. And then again, I want to discuss what a victory looks like for each of these eight players as we head into a first, uh, our first batch, excuse me, of quarterfinal matches in both the men's and women's singles draws. So as always, that's the agenda here on this preview podcast. Have all of you listeners feeling prepared for the day's singles battles in Melbourne, of course. If you've missed out on any of the action, you can catch up on it all over on the Mini Break podcast feed to make up for my lack of fourth round coverage. We have David Kane joining us here on Monday to rank our eight quarterfinals by order of interest and obviously discuss some of the other storylines we've seen emerge thus far at the year's first major. So for all of your recap content, again, head on over to the mini break podcast feed. A thank you and shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who not only makes all these podcasts possible, but is now posting those mini breaks over on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel where you can find that content. You can find our college tennis broadcast, by the way, more coming up this weekend with the ITA kickoff weekend, the, dare I say, what's the, what's the term I'm looking for? The metaphorical is not the right word, but the symbolic, that's the word, the symbolic start to a new college tennis season, the ITA kickoff weekend. You've got 30 of the top men's and women's teams in the country, plus more, all in action. 20 of those teams going to be broadcasted on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel, as well as on ESPN+, Plus. but those ESPN Plus broadcasts facilitated by our Crack Rackets team. So we're really excited to broadcast what we think is maybe the best level of tennis we have in the world. Maybe not from a quality standpoint. Obviously, Novak Djokovic a little bit better than college number one, Elliot Spaziri, but but certainly, again, the passion, the energy, the enthusiasm, and the level of play, it will compel you as a tennis fan. I promise you watch one broadcast, you're going to be hooked. We're right alongside this Australian Open action on ESPN+. Plus. So again, no excuse not to check it out. Be sure to enjoy our coverage of ITA kickoff weekend across our Crack Rackets YouTube channel and ESPN+. Plus Coming up this weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, of course. Through all of that, I will still do my best to try and have podcasts for all of you listeners. That said, after tomorrow, a reminder, all of our Australian Open coverage going to be focused on the mini break podcast feed as we've got a bunch of different college tennis up coming up this weekend. That's all going to be focused here. So all of that established. Again, you didn't come here to hear the plugs, although I do want to keep you up to date on all things we're doing here at Crack Rackets, things that are only made possible, of course, because of your support. And that support is, of course, for our coverage of the pro tennis world. So with all of that said, let's get into day 10 of the 2024 Australian Open. Let's start with the mainstream headline match. It's four versus five. It's Sinner versus Rublev. This is a matchup every tennis fan can get excited about. Of course, you look at the tennis abstract singles forecast, Yannick Sinner, the significant favorite, 78.4%. Why is that the case? Well, it's because you look uh, for Yannick Sinner. Uh, Not only does Sinner have the head-to-head advantage for two over Andre Rublev, including victories on hard courts in straight sets, in each of their matchups last year, but it's because Yannick Sinner has been elite over the last six, nine, 12 months. You pick the time period you want to go with. He has been tier one good on the ATP tour. You look for Yannick Sinner, 63 and 13 overall over his last 52 weeks of play. Here's the most impressive part. He's 13 and three 
against top 10 opponents on hard courts during that stretch of time. You want to remove his wins over Alcaraz, Rublev, Fritz, Tsitsipas from the first third of last season. That was too long ago. Fine. Let's just go since the U.S. Open on hard courts. He's beaten Daniil Medvedev twice. He's beaten Daniil Medvedev, excuse me, three times. He's beaten Novak Djokovic twice. He's beaten Carlos Alcaraz once. He's beaten Andre Rublev uh, once, excuse me. Like, He's beaten everyone you've wanted to beat except Sasha Zverev, who obviously got him at the U.S. Open last year. But uh, again, like that's not who he faces in this one. He has already beaten Andre Rublev twice on hard courts in the past year. And again, 63-13 and 13 overall, 83% win percentage, 13-3 and 3 and 81% win percentage against top 10 opponents. The you know, again, his hold percentage drops a bit against those top tenors. It goes from 88.3, which, by the way, is a top five number on the ATP Tour, to 86.9. Oh, no, still a top 10 number on the ATP Tour. The break percentage dips from 29%, where he's third right now on the ATP Tour, to 21.6, which is still a top 25 number amongst top 100 players on the ATP Tour. And again, that's against top 10 competition the biggest knock, obviously, against Yannick Sinner. He's playing in just his sixth quarterfinal at the major level. He's 1-4 in, in those quarterfinals. Now, got to the semifinals for the first time last season at Wimbledon, but for his career at the majors, 5-12 and 12 against top 20 opponents. Yes, he beat Karen Hatchinoff in straight sets in the round of 16, and to me, that's indicative of the Sinner we have now. But prior to that, he had lost his last five matchups uh, against top 20 opponents at the majors, and in his career, 2-7 and seven against top 20 opponents in hardcourt major events, those two wins, the Hatchinov win from last round and a five-set win over Gael Monfi at the 2021 U.S. Open. The argument against Yannick Sinner entering this match is you still need to see it to believe it. You want to watch him beat elite competition in a best-of-five-set format, see his body hold up, see him actually get over the finish line too. Provide further confirmation that everything we've seen in the two out of th- the three-set format over the last year is real. And again, I know that quarterfinal number is a little bit shaky, one in four overall, but let's keep in mind, you look at round of 16s now for Yannick Sinner. Not only has he made 11 round of 16s in his career, just 22 years old at the majors, he made the round of 16 at all four majors in 2022, in three of four majors in 2023, and now he is back into another quarterfinal, but obviously week two of major here to kick off 2024. He has consistently put himself in these sorts of opportunities, and of late, at least at the two out of the three set level, again, 13-3 and against top 10 opponents, he has been able to deliver the signature results that were lacking when he was 19, 20, even 21 years old. Obviously, on the other side of things, you have an Andre Rublev who has just been tested to get here. Two five-set victories, his latest, a four-plus-hour thriller against Alex Diemenauer, where, yeah, he won that final set six-love. It wasn't an easy six-love set. Diemenauer was in roadrunner mode, and the discipline, the patience, the physicality. We talk about the Rublev weaponry so much, his serve, his plus-one forehand— he is as fit as any player we have on the ATP Tour. I didn't say as fast as any ATP player, although I do think from a movement perspective, he does continue to improve as a, uh, his fluidity. He's quicker getting out of that backhand corner, obviously has always been quick in finding forehands, uh, forehands in that ad side of the court. But 
again, 26 years old, he should be at the peak of his powers physically. He absolutely is. This is a guy who can play five sets and be ready to play the next day if necessary. And so, yeah, he's played a lot of tennis to get to this quarterfinal. I don't worry about that aspect for him. Obviously, you worry about the mental hump. Andre Rublev playing in his 10th quarterfinal of his career. By the way, three quarterfinals last year, two for him the year before that. He has made the quarterfinals or further now at five of the last six majors. He's 0-9 in those quarterfinal matches. We've never seen Andre Rublev make a semifinal. You look for Andre Rublev in his career, uh, or at least in hard court matches against top 10 opponents since the start of 2021. Andre Rublev 10 and 16 overall in those matches. Two and seven against top 10 opponents on hard courts uh, over the last 52 weeks, but. You know, obviously that 0-3 record for him at the Tour Finals where he was playing exclusively top eight players, uh, a little bit more difficult. For what it's worth, he's been a little bit better against top 20 opponents at the majors than Yannick Sinner. I mentioned Sinner's 5-12 and record earlier. Uh, you look for Andre Rublev. He's 9-11 and uh, against top 20 opponents at the majors. His last victory obviously coming in his most recent round against Alex Diemenauer, but last year got a win over Holger Runa at the majors as well. The year before that wins over guys like Norman. And Yannick Sinner when they faced off head to head in their role on Garros round of 16 matchup. I mean, look again, it, it's a prove it match for both guys. I think Rublev a little bit more than. Well, it's interesting. If you look at this match, the narrative, both guys, you know, who are you more concerned about if they lose this match? If it, Andre Rublev loses this match, it's a double down of the same storyline. And that's what's particularly concerning is as well as he played against Demon Hour, and he played very well in what was a five-set victory over a guy who has clearly been a top eight guy on hard courts now for a year. If he loses this match, it's going to get painted into, well, he just can't get over that quarterfinal threshold. And not actually Yannick Sinner is playing elite tennis right now. And this is just a further display of Sinner being at the level that we've all think we've seen from him now for at least six months consecutively, or maybe three months consecutively post-US Open, however you want to say it. At the other side, if Sinner loses this match, I think more people would be celebrating it as a Rublev milestone threshold clearing moment than a disaster for Yannick Sinner. I mean, pending him having some sort of cramp out or having some sort of disastrous performance with his tennis, which just doesn't happen very frequently. If you're going to beat Yannick Sinner of late, you got to play elite ball. That's what I keep coming back to is I think this match is more important for Rublev because I think he wins it. The storyline is not Sinner fell apart. It's Andre Rublev finally gets over that threshold. And oh my God, is this the year where maybe just maybe he starts to sniff around tier number one uh, on the ATP tour if Sinner wins this match, it's just confirmation of everything. I have certainly believed for a very long time, but what we've seen over the last three months, which is just his best is as good as anyone's best right now we have in the game. And again, he comes into this matchup a little bit, certainly fresher of the two guys. Sinner yet to drop a set so far. And even though he was pushed against Hatchinov, that match still just two and a half hours by the way, Sinner broken just twice in the 12 sets that he's played so far. Obviously, for Rublev, two five-set matches. The Sabathfield and Alex Demonauer battles, straight sets in between against Korda Eubanks, two matches that, while competitive, were both under two hours. And again, I don't worry about Rublev from a fitness perspective. What does a center win look like? It's that his pace overwhelms Andre. It's that not only can he match his pace forehand to forehand, which Sinner is maybe one of the few guys who can and won't be overwhelmed by that Rublev pace, can dish it right back. Sinner also 
more capable of generating offensive pace on his backhand wing, both line and cross, than Rublev. I think Sinner's a little bit more comfortable volleying, but Rublev's certainly a little bit more relentless in how he gets after the forehand the way Sinner's been stepping into the return of serve. I just don't know if Andre Rublev's going to have much time to get into his plus one forehand or the sort of time he certainly did in what was, again, a very physical match against Alex Diemenauer. But Rublev could afford to be patient against Demon in a way that Sinner will just punish, as we've seen throughout the course uh, of his run to this quarterfinals. At the same time, Sinner, yeah, you know, again, Sinner has yet to drop a set. He's also Hatchinov, I guess, to some degree with the serve and forehand combination, but Rublev a little bit more consistent with those combinations. Rublev obviously a little bit better defensively as well when pushed by Sinner's pace, going to be more consistent in responding to that. I think Sinner might lose a set in this match, certainly. I think Yannick Sinner gets through. I just, again, 13-3. and three. That's the number that keeps jumping out to me against top 10 opponents. And again, he's been able to hold serve fairly successfully. I think of the top 10 opponents you can get, Andre Rublev, at least if he's not landing a high percentage of first serve, as breakable of anyone in the bunch. And I just think Sinner, again, has weapons to get him off the baseline. I think we see Yannick Sinner advance in this match in four sets. Again, it's not a knock on Rublev. It won't be him dropping to 0-10. He just can't get over this threshold. I think it has everything to do with just the Sin Man. He's here to stay. Yeah, I'll be honest. That's my match of the day. Rublev versus Sinner. It should be the match of the day. It's mainstream. Excellent. Give me Sinner to advance. And again, he is the favorite to do so as well, according to Tennis Abstract. 78.4% favorite Yannick Sinner, the last match on. So if you wake up early enough, there's a chance Sinner Rublev might be battling early into the morning and late into uh, here in the United States and late into the Aussie night. Let's move on next to Sabalenka Krachikova. Uh, certainly, again, another one, I think, mainstream headlines. Across the board, when you look at this match, Sabalenka, the two seed, Krejcikova, the nine seed, they're both major champions. Krejcikova, of course, 2021 French Open. Sabalenka, last year's Australian Open champion. Sabalenka's 5-1 and one in the career head-to-head. But remember, start of last season, these two play quarterfinals. Dubai, Krejcikova handing Sabalenka that first post-Australian Open loss. Love 6 7 6, six one. Might not have been her first post-Australian Open loss, but certainly a significant one. Love 6 7 6, six one. Sabalenka then returns the favor. 6-3-2-6-6-4 in the Indian Wells round of 16. And then, of course, the very next event, Miami. These two draw one another once again. And again, if you were a critique of a fan, you were thinking, man, she beats Iga, she beats Sabalenka in Dubai, and now she's going to draw Sabalenka two more times, not in the quarters or the semis, but in the round of 16 in both of these events. It was extraordinarily unfortunate for Krachikova, who wasn't able to make a rankings push in the way maybe her level to start last season would have indicated Sabalenka a 3-2 and two win in that match, then beat her on the clay 2-3 and three when those two played indoors in Stuttgart. I mean, again, Sabalenka has been exceptional. She's 8-1 and one to start this season, holding serve 88.7% of the time. That would be a record on the WTA Tour if it extends throughout the course of the year. She's 7-0 in her previous seven major quarterfinals and obviously went 4-0 in quarterfinals last year, has made the quarterfinals or further now at her last six majors, has made the semifinals or further at her last five majors entering this one. 12-8 against top 20 competition again over the last 52 weeks is Arena Sapolenka, but do I need to make the case for Sapolenka 9-7 in her career at the majors against top 20 opponents, but is one, uh, excuse me, seven of her last 10. Like, 
again, do I need to make the case? I think it's pretty self-explanatory. You look for Arena Sabalenka, her pathway to this run, she's dropped a total of 11 games. 11 games in four matches. Now, the competition, you know, again, Anisimova is playing good ball. She's just not moving well enough, wasn't able to give Sabalenka any sort of extended push, even when, again, there were times when she played front foot tennis, but not enough. Serenko, 0-0, speaks for itself. Fruvertova, physically, just not on that level at Seidel. Physically, just not on that level yet. Didn't have any weapons to hurt Sabalenka. I guess the case against Arena would be that this is the stiffest level of competition she has faced to date. And that, you know, again, there there was a world last year where she walked out of the season with all four major titles in her pocket. And there were some winning moments where, again, things got a little bit tight and she wasn't able to get over the finish line. And certainly Krejcikova, who has earned multiple come-from-behind victories at this major, Krejcikova from a set-down has won three of her four matches, that she can at least, at least maybe put that sort of pressure on Arena Sabalenka. Now, Krejcikova hasn't had the toughest path to this quarterfinal either. No seeds faced. She did have to face a very much informed 16-year-old Mira Andreeva, who's playing like a top 30 player in the world. But Krejcikova, slow and steady, calibrated her way, her pace, her aggression, overwhelming the 16-year-old in a 4-6-6-3-6-2 win. I mean, again, it's a big moment for Krejcikova. Uh, you look for her overall in her career. It's her fourth career quarterfinal. First, though, since the 2022 Australian Open. And again, there have been a lot of ups and downs. Moments where she's played elite tennis, certainly. Ostrava, 2022. Dubai last year. Pockets to end last season as well. But to get a consistent major result, to get herself back into the top 10 of the live rankings, where, by the way, she's 10, Chin Wen's at 11, so we're fighting for a top 10 spot. Krejcikova one point ahead of Chin Wen at this moment. It's a big opportunity for Krejcikova, who will certainly have the chance to swing freely, and you look for her in her career, 7-6 and six against top 20 opponents on hard courts, 3-4 and four against the top 20 at majors. It's about as good as you could ask for, for Krejcikova. Her weapons obviously can give opponents trouble. Again, she pushed Sabalenka to three set matches twice last season. And while I'll be honest, again, Krejcikova, I don't think we've seen her best tennis at this Australian Open. We've seen her survive in every of her matches. We've seen maybe her tenacity, her problem solving might be at its best. But I think the actual tennis itself, the ability to swing so freely with such depth and such drive on her ground strokes when she is playing her best, the pinpoint accuracy, the relentless ability to move forward, the sneaky speed in and out of corners as well. All of that has been fine. There's a reason she's batten down a set in three of her four matches. It's because it has taken her a second to calibrate in each of those matches. And again, I don't think I need to talk through what a Sabalenka win looks like. It's relentless pace from the onset, the return of serve, her serve plus one and first shot combinations off both the forehand and backhand wing. She can just overwhelm you in the snap of a finger. Krejcikova has been a little bit more measured. It's taken a little bit longer. It can't because in the time it's taken her to lost uh, to lose first sets over her three of her four matches, Sabalenka will already be up six one three love uh, by the time Krejcikova wakes up. She's got to have that accuracy, got to have that length on her ground stroke, that ability to stretch Sabalenka to the outer thirds in particular behind her first serve from the start. Krejcikova is an excellent returner. She's going to be a Hall of Famer with her, with her doubles resume alone. 
the return of serve is such a critical part of that. The drive she can produce, again, she'll be able to punish some Sabalenka second serve. So if there are any service yips, there is a world where Krutchikova can play a little front foot tennis. But Sabalenka's just been on a warpath. And it took an otherworldly performance from Elena Rabakina. Dare I say the best tennis of her career in that straight set win in Brisbane. That's the sort of tennis it takes to stop Sabalenka, uh, to slow Sabalenka down right now. And unless she slows herself down, I just don't see Krejcikova as playing at a high enough level right now to pressure uh, the world number two. So give me Sabalenka to advance. I know two shockers here. You're going with the seeds. Tennis Abstract has Sabalenka a 73.4% favorite as well. The other women's match. Coco Goff versus Marta Kostiuk. Obviously, Tennis Abstract going to significantly favor Coco Goff. She's an 84.7% favorite. Makes a lot of sense why. Obviously, you look at the recent uh, deltas in success between the two. I mean, Coco Goff has arguably been, if not the best player in the world since the end of Wimbledon. A top three player in the world, her, Sabalenka, Sviantek, really the only three you can make the argument for. And Goff 1-0 in her career against Kostyuk, a three-set win in the 2022 Adelaide warm-up event for the Australian Open. Obviously, a lot has changed since. uh, Goff playing in her sixth quarterfinal. Five of those six have come since she placed Kost, uh, played Kostyuk in that 2022 Adelaide matchup. Goff now making quarterfinals are further at four of the last six majors she's played. Goff also in her last 52 weeks, just a casual 52 and 15 overall. She's holding serve 86.3% of the time to start the season, breaking serve 59.7% of the time. More than every other she has broken her opponents so far this year. 9-0, obviously, to start the year. Wins over players like Svitolina, Navarro, Brenda Fruvertova, now here in Australia. All straight set wins. I mentioned uh, the fact that Sabalenka has lost 11 games. Uh, Coco Goff's lost 16 games through 12 sets of tennis. I'm no mathematician, but I'm pretty sure that's pretty good. A couple of bagels on her resume as well. Um, yeah, I, I mean, again... Magdalena Frich, Alicia Parks, Caroline Dalahide, Anna Karolina Schmidlova. That's a pretty favorable draw for Coco Goff to have received. And even Marta Kostyuk, who, yeah, is sniffing around top 30 now in the live rankings with this first quarterfinal push. But pretty ideal pathway for Coco Goff to get to a quarterfinal. That said, don't hate the player. Hate the game. Coco Goff, 27-1 against opponents ranked outside the top 20 uh, over her last 52 weeks. She hasn't lost a match against a top 20 uh, opponent ranked outside the top 20 on hard courts since the start of Washington, D.C. And, you know, you look at the record, she has now won 21 consecutive matches against opponents ranked outside the top 20 on hard courts. It's because if you don't have an elite weapon, and you can't sustain that elite weapon with three hours of consistency, you're just not beating Coco Goff. Coco Goff, by the way, 13-1 over her last 52 weeks at the majors against opponents ranked outside the top 20. Her only loss, that three-set loss to Kennan first round of Wimbledon. I mean, again, like the numbers are scary for Coco Goff right now. The eye test is scary. None of her opponents thus far in 2024, and I've watched at least highlights from every match None of them have been able to disrupt anything. 
that Coco Goff wants to do. Yes, Fidelina had a moment first set in Auckland where she matched Goff's physicality, took a few serves on the rise aggressively as returns, and was able to get a little pressure into that Coco Goff forehand. Brenda Fruvertova was able to do it for maybe 20 minutes. Uh, Caroline Dalahide was able to do it maybe for a set, but not really. Like... Coco's been excellent. She has been as good as advertised. She has looked like the number four player in the world. She has pulled away from every opponent that she's faced. But look, Marta Kostyuk's playing with a little bit of magic here. First quarterfinal for the 21-year-old. She's up to a new career high ranking, 28 in the live rankings as such. First quarterfinal at the majors, I want to emphasize. Now here's the number against her. She's 3-15 and 15 against top 10 opponents in her career. Here's the number for her. Those three victories, they've all come since Wimbledon last year. Wins over Sakari, Garcia, and Anz Jabur in that stretch. She also won her first title last year in Austin, Texas. 27-21 and 21 over, the all, over the last 52 weeks doesn't sound great, but you look at what she's done to start this season. 7-2, and two, tight losses to Kasatkina, Ostapanko, and Adelaide in Brisbane. Impressive in wins over Elisa Mertens. That match might have been one of the higher quality matches we've had all tournament long. Dominant over Maria Timofeeva, who was very consistent, extraordinarily physical. She didn't have a single weapon to hurt Marta Kostyuk within that quarterfinal uh, round of 16 matchup. Again, there are shades of golf-esque performance in what Marta Kostyuk is doing. The physicality, her ability to slide in and out of the corners, again, the depth she can generate on every ground stroke, the fact that she can use her speed so well, the power she's able to generate with that natural twitchiness to snap an approach shot by you, snap something inside out or down the line by you, move something for, uh, move forward behind something and beat you to a spot. She's always been able to do a bunch of things well. That's why the 21-year-old was so promising before perhaps the slump she had in 2022 that kind of steered everyone off the course. This is a course correction sort of event for Kostyuk. Exactly what she needed to kick off a new year. Just confirmation that, hey, this is the level I belong at. And look, again, the numbers are not kind to her. 3-15 and 15 over the uh, in her career against top 10 opponents. Even hell, the 3-4 and four against top 10 opponents over her last 52 weeks. Goff ain't just top 10. Goff's tier one best of the best right now. Kostyuk's going to need everything in her bag of tricks. And guess what? That she got off the court in one hour, 16 minutes in her round of 16 match. That's critical because you need, she needs to be as well-rested as you can be at this point of a tournament to deal with a Coco Goff who, again, has dropped 16 games in, I think I said 12 sets of tennis, excuse me, eight sets of tennis um, so far at this event. <sighs> Kostyuk has real weapons. Like, her serve into that Goff forehand, Goff might have to leave that ball a little bit short. Kostyuk's going to be comfortable going down the line. Kostyuk's going to be able to match Goff's consistency. I think she's going to be able to match Goff's energy. I think there's a lot of belief for Marta Kostyuk entering this match. You know, the confirmation, okay, now I'm back on this level. Now I get a shot at a big dog. Now it's time for me to go out, play my best tennis, swing freely, be the underdog, be the person chasing, not getting chased as maybe she might have felt and just about all. But even that Mertens match was 50-50 from a pedigree standpoint. She gets to chase for the first time in this event. And look, Coco Goff has been chased now for six months consecutively and ain't no one outside the top 20 caught her. 
You lean Coco Goff. I do think this is where Goff loses her first set. That's the sort of fight intensity belief. And again, the well-rounded nature of Kostyuk's game. I think she will have some success changing direction, whether it's forehand line into the Goff backhand, whether it's backhand line into the Goff forehand, whether it's the serve wide plus one ball to the open court moving forward behind it to just try and dictate the terms of aggression against Goff. Because I do think Goff is a little bit more comfortable not a little bit. She is just straight up more comfortable playing in with plus one aggression, knowing the spots to move forward, being decisive in her choices. Kostyuk sometimes a little bit more reactive than proactive. Goff has gotten so good at finding her spot. She's not an O to start this season for a reason. Goff in three sets. This is going to be a really fun match. Again, Coco Goff, significant favorite according to Tennis Abstract, 84.7%. That is underselling what I've seen with my eyes. Marta Kostyuk, do of late. Give me Kostyuk to fight, but Goff to ultimately advance in straights. And then last, but certainly not least, Djokovic versus Fritz. Look, the career head-to-head is lopsided. Djokovic 8-0 against Taylor Fritz, including a straight-set victory at last year's U.S. Open in the quarterfinals, 1-4-4. In fact, they've played eight times. Only once has Djokovic lost a set to Fritz. That's when they went five sets at the 2021 Australian Open. If you guys remember, Djokovic needed that opening week to work his way back into shape then ultimately played some really outstanding tennis. He was dealing with a little bit of an injury throughout the course of that tournament. But again... Taylor Fritz has had those sorts of moments where he just swings freely, where he hits the big serve, where he pushes the best before ultimately falling short. And unfortunately against Djokovic, that seems to have been the case thus far. Djokovic, uh, 86.1% favorite, according to Tennis Abstract. He is now playing in what I believe is his 58th quarterfinal of his career at the majors. I think it's, yeah, yeah, his 58th quarterfinal of his career hasn't has lost just one major quarterfinal since the start of the 2018 Wimbledon so it's a lot of it's like he's 13 and 1 or 14 and 1 something in his last 15 the one loss a four set loss to Rafa in what was a thrilling match in their 2022 Roland Garros quarterfinal the last person not named Rafa to beat him 2018 Roland Garros that was Marco Cecchinato in the Roland Garros quarterfinals has he ever lost in a quarterfinal at the Australian Open I'm glad you asked he's 10 and 3 overall his last loss in a quarterfinal round 2014, a guy by the name of Stan Wawrinka, who, as the kids would say, was redlining throughout the course of that match, swinging so freely. And look, Taylor Fritz has the the contact points. He has the ball-striking capability to put on a display like that. We saw Taylor play, I'm going to say, the best match of his career in advancing to this third quarterfinal at a major in his career and beating Stefano Tsitsipas in four sets. Fritz ultimately 7-6-5, faced just four break points, was uh, broken just twice, was swinging so freely, was finding his backhand line well, was moving well, was volleying confidently, even if at times he even gestured to himself how lucky he was getting with where some of his volleys were landing. You look for Taylor Fritz in his career. I mean, obviously, here's the big number since the start of 2022, one that would slant in his favor. He's 9-9 nine and nine against top 10 opponents on hard courts. That's actually pretty damn good for a guy who, by the way, has been knocking on the door of top 10 in the rankings for much of these last two years as well on hard courts. He has played at that level. Now, he's 3-12 and 12 in his career against top 20 opponents at the majors. Wins against Demonauer, RBA, and Tsitsipas. You know, again, there's not a... I guess that Tsitsipas is the first hint of like a tier two sort of caliber win for him at a major. There's not a Zverev win in there. There's not a Rublev win in there. There's not 
a Medvedev or a Kasparud win in there. Obviously, no Alcaraz Sinner wins either. This Tsitsipas win was his best victory in his career, probably at a major. And certainly, again, I thought the highest level we've seen from him. I think he looked fit. I think he looked focused. I think he was striking the ball really well. I don't think he served elite. I mean, he made 70% of his first serves, but he was just so smart with his spots. And obviously, that's the biggest difference between playing Djokovic and Tsitsipas. You know the spots to hit against Stefano Tsitsipas. You know, hey, I'm going into that backhand corner. When all, all else fails, depth into that backhand side, patient, discipline there. He'll either pop something up or try to force himself into something, and then I'll have all of this space to attack. Again, Taylor Fritz was very disciplined in exing his, executing his game plan successfully against Stefano Tsitsipas. Novak Djokovic doesn't have that bailout thing to get to. Novak Djokovic, who, by the way, has slowly but surely grown more and more dominant in every victory he's earned. Four sets over Prismich, that match took four hours and one minute. Four sets over Popper in three hours, 11 minutes. Straight sets over Echeverry, two hours, 28 minutes. Oh, oh, and three over Manorino. He wasn't broken, one hour, 44 minutes. By the way, he hasn't been broken in either of his last two matches. I mean, again, I just saw how in control Novak Djokovic was when these two played. Uh, in New York, and I just worry it's the same script, that, yeah, Taylor's pace exploits lesser opponents, particularly those with vulnerabilities. Novak doesn't have that. Novak is going to not only match Taylor's precision, match Taylor's pace, match the depth, he's going to exceed Taylor physically as well. Everything Taylor does, Novak, unfortunately, still probably does better. Taylor's going to get his winners. Taylor's going to have some plus one swings. He has gotten incrementally better at everything each and every season of his career. And I think you saw shades of that volleying in more decisiveness in how he would close out points against Tsitsipas. I just don't think that volleying has come far enough to where, again, if Djokovic gives you even a millimeter, you have to take it. And I don't think Fritz's volleying precision is millimeter-esque yet. I'll take Novak in straight sets. Tennis Abstract agrees with me. Novak, 86.1% favorite. That said, again, like... Uh, on the men's side, it's easier to make the case. You have six of the top eight seeds still alive. By the way, shout out to our friends at Opta Ace. This is the first time ever in the Open era. All of the top six seeds have reached the quarterfinals of an Australian Open men's singles competition. And players seven and eight are a guy in Hubi Hercats, who's 30 and 11 since the end of uh, start of Wimbledon and won the Shanghai Masters. And the other guy is Taylor Fritz, who's been knocking on the door of top 10, top eight for two years consecutively and now has made quarterfinals at back-to-back hardcore majors. These are, you know, the men's draw is awesome on the women's side. Looks all signs are pointing towards a U.S. Open final rematch in the bottom half of the draw between Sabalenka and Goff. And then we get a first-time finalist, right? Whether it's Chin Wen, whether it's uh, Yastremska, Kalinskaya, or obviously 19-year-old Linda Neskova, there's some excitement there. Particularly if it's Yastremska, Chin Wen, or Neskova, I think it's a little easier to sell probably than Kalinskaya. But for Kalinskaya, 25 years old, never in the top 50 before maybe a slam final run. I mean, this just keeps happening. Like uh, you just, there's a lot of good storylines to get excited about as we hit the home stretch of the year's first major. So we will keep you up to date on all of those storylines as they continue to emerge from Melbourne. Of course, if you've missed out on anything. 
Reminder, you can catch up on it all over on the Mini Break podcast feed. You can watch those podcasts now on YouTube as well. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out as well to all of you listeners for continuing to tune in day in, day out again. We continue to have record numbers here to kick off our 2024 coverage, and that is a testament to all of you tuning in and giving us a chance to entertain you with our thoughts on all things in the tennis world with with that said, signing off for now for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. We hope all of you enjoy day 10 of the 2024 Australian Open. But for now, you know what we say. Hey, great shot, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>